I learned this past Wednesday uh, that somebody in our church had asked somebody else in our church, hey, boy, I hope he's going to preach on that shrewd manager passage because I've never heard a sermon on that. It's just too confusing. It's challenge. Oh, goodness, I was supposed to preach on it last week. So I bumped it back a week so I could have extra time to prepare. And you know, all that extra time of preparing didn't help me in the least bit. I'm still confused. I prayed over this passage. I read this passage. I prayed over it more. I read it more. I I wrote down questions I had, thoughts on the directions I could go with it. Prayed some more, read some more. You, You get the point. After that, I went to the commentaries I had, all of them. And then more commentaries online, hoping to get some clarity. I think I had seven or eight commentaries, and each one said something different. So this morning, here's what I'm proposing. First proposal. If this parable makes perfectly good sense to any one of you, and if you know without a shadow of a doubt that your interpretation is what God wants us to hear this morning, I will gladly sit down. You guys can come on up, share what you know is truth. Takers? Nuts. I was hoping for that. Okay, second proposal then. I'll walk through this parable, stumbling along with you guys, and if you give me grace for not knowing the answers for everything, we'll trust that God is going to use what is said and done this morning to impact each and every one here. You guys good with that one? Okay, let's see what this confusing text does. Chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus told this story to his disciples. And we'll stop right there. Coming out of chapter 15, we shift the main recipients of who Jesus is talking to. All of chapter 15, he's been talking to the grumblers and complainers that we see at the beginning of chapter 15, 1 and 2. And now we see that Jesus shifts his attention to his disciples. Now, I still think there are people around who are listening, who are hearing, but Jesus' gaze goes from the big crowd to his immediate 12. I think this is important. I'll I'll tell you why a little bit later. So verse 1, Jesus told this story to his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. One day, a report came that the manager was wasting the employer's money. Here again, like the last two weeks, we begin a story, Jesus saying we have a certain rich man. I don't know if there's any significance to that, but it's interesting that it keeps coming up. Today, the rich man has put somebody else, a manager or a steward, in charge of all that he has. This is very similar to what we see in the Old Testament with Joseph when he was working with Potiphar. Genesis chapter 39, you can just listen, verse 2 through 4. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. Now this pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. Now, it sounds like the man in our story had a similar role. He had similar power, similar authority. But unlike Joseph, this man was a bit of a rascal. He was wasting the employer's money. Now, there's speculation as to what he was doing, some disagreement as to what he was doing. The bottom line is, he just wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. 
Maybe he was being unethical. Maybe he was cheating. Maybe he was stealing. We don't really know for sure. Verse 2. So the employer called him in and said, what's this I hear about you? Get your report in order because you are going to be fired. It appears that the master had believed what he had heard about this manager. Or maybe the lack of any sort of denial from the manager proved that the accusations were correct. Any matter, the master says, you're done. Okay? You've been working for me for however long, but you need to get your affairs in order. Get your books, bring them to me, and show them to me because you can no longer be on my payroll. You're going to be fired. Verse 3. The manager thought to himself, now what? My boss has fired me. My translation makes it seem like it was an immediate thing. You know, like the manager came in, the guy looked at him kind of Donald Trump style and said, you're fired, right? Isn't that how he says it? But other translations make it seem like he said, okay, you're going to be fired. Get your stuff in order, and, and then when you come back, then you'll be done. And, and I prefer those translations as that allows for the manager's actions. As, as we'll see, what he did would not have had any weight if he was no longer on the guy's payroll. But if he's still working for him, his actions still hold some sway. So all of verse 3. The manager thought to himself, now what? My boss has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig dishes, and I'm too proud to beg. This manager, he had a white-collar position. Okay, a highly respected position. It was said that in those days, people would sell themselves in order to have a position like this. And this position, you know, like we saw with Joseph, came with high societal respect. You're working for a rich person. So to go from white collar to blue collar was several steps down. One commentator even said that a drop like this would put the man in the unclean or the degraded social status. This was not what the manager wanted. So he devised this plan. Ah, he says in verse 4, I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home once I am fired. Aha, he says. It was as if, as if a light bulb went on. And the Greek, the original Greek paints that same picture as if the idea just kind of fell on him. And he says, well... I, the problem's obvious here. Once fired, this manager was not going to have a roof over his head. He was not going to have food on his plate. Frankly, if he was fired that way, he probably wouldn't even be able to afford a plate to put food on. He'd be broke, no place to go, with no options looking good. Okay? Nobody in that society was, was then going to hire him knowing that he was hired or fired for what he did. Now, all this man wanted to do was ensure that he had shelter and food. That's a noble desire, isn't it? He wants to have shelter and food. But the story gives us a fairly good detail of what his plan entailed. Verses 5 through 7. So the manager invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. He asked the first one, how much do you owe him? The man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him to take the bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. And how much do you owe my employer, he asked the next man. Well, I owe him a thousand bushels of wheat, was the reply. 
Here, the manager said, take the bill and change it to 800 bushels of wheat. We're going to look at these numbers briefly. But before that, let's look at the big picture of of the, the scene that this manager sees. We see this big picture in four steps. When the guy was called into the boss's office, the manager, he saw the issue clearly. He saw the problem clearly. He was going to get fired, and he needed to do something. Second thing, upon seeing the problem clearly, it was evident that the man cared for his future. There's people today who, when they, got, when they get caught, would be like, eh, oh well, my run's over. I guess I can't live this life anymore. Not this man, okay? He cared about the days ahead. Uh, Thirdly, the manager then made provision for he knew what was coming. He had seen the issue clearly, cared about his future, and he did something about it. I'm not saying what he did was right. I'm saying he just did something. And fourth, not only did he do something, he did something quickly. He had this small window of opportunity while he still had authority of his job title. You know, long enough to gather the accounts together. So he had to act quickly which he did. That's big picture. Now we kind of we hone in on what's really going on. We read that the manager invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. Our text just shows us two people that came, but it's safe to assume that there were quite a few people that came. Now who knows how long the line was standing outside the manager's office waiting to discuss the situation. I would guess that if there were a long line and one by one the debtors came out smiling, talking about how much smaller their debt was, everybody else would be like, ooh, wonder how small mine's going to be. We read verses 5 through 7, and hopefully we squirm a little bit. Doesn't look right, does it, what he did? So why would he do this? Again, I went back to all the commentators that I had and more online, and and they just couldn't decide why he did this. But overall, three really came to the surface, three reasons. Some people say that the manager did this in order to make the owner look bad, like he had hiked up the prices. There's others that say the manager was just removing the interest, which was against Jewish law. You know, if, if you lent money to a Jew and you were a Jew, the law said you weren't supposed to charge interest. Exodus twenty two twenty five. if you lend money to any of my people who are in need, do not charge interest as a money lender would. So some people say that the, the manager was simply removing that interest, kind of putting his, his owner back in line with the law. There's a third group that says the manager was removing his own commission. Maybe he had a prick in his conscience. And he said, i got to make this right. So he's sacrificing his own money and not his master's. Now regardless of what view you want to take, the point is the steward's actions were lessening the debtor's burdens. And they were creating future goodwill towards this manager upon release into the labor market. Ultimately, this is what the manager was trying to do, right? Secure some food and shelter for him when he was let go. So let's, let's look at the amounts. In your Bibles, how many of it says 800 gallons of olive oil? Okay, a couple. How many of it says something different? Yeah, there are all sorts of crazy numbers. How many of them say 1,000 bushels of wheat? How many of them have some word like core or ephahs or uh, bushels or liters? Or... You've got measures. 
Okay. You've got, I like that one. <laughs> Let's talk about the amounts really, really quick. The amount of olive oil that was owed. And these are figured out from very smart people who are, you know, paid to figure these sort of things out. Roughly 800 to 875 gallons of olive oil. This was the equivalent to 1,000 denarii. So a full day's wage is one denarii. So that much olive oil, three years' labor, cut in half. And the guy would have left going, whew, that's a load off. Now the grain, Josephus on his larger scale equated this to 39,000 liters of grain. One commentator said this was equivalent to upwards of 3,000 denarii. Eight to ten years of labor. What was this manager thinking as he did this? I spent time the last two weeks trying to get inside the manager's head. I mean, aside from the obvious food and shelter, was there anything else this sneaky manager was trying to do? Could he have been trying to implicate others into his scheming? To put others into the bad graces of the master? I mean, if, if that, everybody was cheating then wouldn't it be uh, better if they weren't, or wouldn't they be more indebted to the person who helped them cheat? I mean, couldn't the manager have been trying to find some way to blackmail others? Maybe he was simply banking on the social credit that would be the norm in hospitality in that day. You know, if you gave something, if you showed positive hospitality, it was assumed that in turn they would give it back at some point. Maybe the manager was simply trying to put his master in a tough situation. Hey, he's firing me. I'm going to make him look bad. Okay, the master's charging interest. I'll take that interest away. If the master ever comes back and says, you know what, my scoundrel of a manager shouldn't have done that. You still owe me more. It'll be evident that the, the owner was charging interest and he would just look really, really bad. You look confused, Ginny. I'm confused too. All these questions, I attempted to get into the manager's head. We probably shouldn't attempt to get into other people's heads. We see the big situation here, right? Let's look at how the master responded. Verse 8. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. Had to admire him. He had to commend him. Wait a second. Is Jesus saying it's okay to cheat? Some people have said that. That's how some have taken this. The answer, of course, is no. This text is simply saying that the master had to admire the man's foresight. He was shrewd. Now, shrewd in the Greek could also be translated wise or sensible. So the manager is doing whatever he needs to to provide for his own future. That sounds wise. It sounds sensible. His actions weren't wise, but the foresight was. Let's read all of verse 8. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And it's true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than the children of the light. Anybody want to argue with the second part of that verse? I was a little bit offended when I read it at first. But then I started thinking, wait, it's, it's just saying that those people of the world are better at dealing with people of the world than followers of Christ. I know for me personally, I try to have uh, honesty in all, my, in all my dealings, but somebody of the world may not have that, and they would be able to tell if somebody else didn't have that easier than I would. They might be able to barter a little bit easier than I would. 
They might be able to expect the worst in somebody a little bit easier than I would. So even after a, a little initial offense, I realized ah, Jesus is probably right there. We get to verse 9. Jesus says, here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then, when your earthly possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. Everybody, go like this. Get your finger up. Go like this. What does that mean? I thought maybe we could get some clarity in other translations. Maybe mine was confusing. So I went to the English Standard Version. And it says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. That's more clear, yeah? Let's try the King James. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into eternal habitations. Huh? Oh. If Jesus ever says, and I tell you, Here's the lesson. You know, we're all like, great, here it comes. You know, we're ready. Because most of the time, we're, you know, we're sitting there bated breath waiting for a simple, understandable explanation because that's what we often get in the other parables. You know, maybe it was confusing to those listening, but we have the, the hindsight of Scripture and, and years and years of people explaining them. And so we're expecting that again this time. Jesus says, here's the lesson. And then we get, make for yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. And when ye faileth, it will lead you into eternal dwellings of habitation. Or something like that. I'm not going to go into what each commentator said on this. Uh, we'd be here for a long time. I want to tell you where I landed, kind of where I, where, where, what I took away. And there's freedom in this. You guys don't have to land in the same place that I'm landing here. But here's what I think Jesus meant by that. I believe Jesus was saying that we should use our resources, whatever those are, our, our worldly resources, to help those in need, to benefit others. And as we do that, we're going to be storing up some eternal treasures. I think this ties back into Matthew chapter 25 when Jesus was talking about the final judgment. He says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? Or a stranger and show hospitality? Or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you were doing it to me. I think that's why in our text today, Jesus mentions being welcomed into eternal homes, everlasting habitations. It was a Jewish belief that charity given to the poor would stand to a man's credit in the world to come. So a man's true wealth was not in what he kept, but in what he gave away. Jesus said in his Beatitudes in Luke 6, God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. 
And they will welcome you into eternal habitations. I think Jesus is saying that we should use our resources to help those in need. And as we do this, we'll be storing up eternal treasures. Now, I told you at the beginning of this message that I I thought it was key that Jesus turned just to his disciples to tell them this lesson. Here's why. I don't think Jesus was simply telling them a fun story that would make them scratch their heads. I think he was telling them what he was giving them. I think he was telling them what he was giving them. I think Jesus was telling the disciples that God was entrusting them with his entire estate. God, as as played by the master in the story, was giving them, as played by the manager, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. They were going to be in charge of all of it. And they were going to be in charge of sharing with those who still owed God something. They are going to be in charge of, of sharing with them the fact that through Jesus, their debt's been paid in full. Jesus was telling the disciples that They needed to look to the future to be shrewd because the day would come when they and all of humanity would stand before God and have to give account of what God put them in charge of. Does that make sense? It makes sense why He would just tell His disciples that. He was going to die on a cross, be raised to life, lead the disciples with with the help of the Holy Spirit. They would need to know the urgency to get the message out there. Jesus wasn't entrusting the message to the Pharisees and others listening to the story. He was entrusting it to His disciples. And in doing so, He was entrusting this story to us. So, like the shrewd manager, I want to ask this. If this is what the text is about, do we see the issues clearly? Do we realize that we are stewards, managers of what God has given us? And are we using his possessions well? Or are we wasting them? Are we ready? Do we see the issues clearly? Do we care about our future? When all is said and done, when our days on this earth are over, do we really care about what happens next to us? What provision have we made for our future? Now what are we doing about that? The manager, he shrewdly took care of business. Are we taking care of business? I believe this is more than simply praying a prayer, believing the right things. Do we have a sense of urgency in all of this? The the manager did. His time was ending and he knew it. Our time will end too. We just don't necessarily know when. Do we have a sense of urgency in this, this, this wealth that we have been given by God? Maybe an analogy would help here. It'd be like this. If we knew that all the American dollars were going to be converted into another currency, say the the British pound, the dollar would cease to exist for any sort of monetary instrument, we didn't know when it was going to take place, what would we do? We would change our money, yeah. All of it, except what we needed to live by day by day. Right? Right? So can we invest as much in kingdom-building investments now and keep as little as we need for day-to-day living? Jesus pulled his 12 disciples aside and 
and told them a story like this. As his disciples today, what are we going to do with it? I don't know your answer. Frankly, even after 25 minutes of talking, I'm still a little bit confused. I think I understand the passage better today than when I first started studying it a couple weeks ago. Bottom line, what I want, I want Jesus to look at me and say, hey, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want him to say, hey, James, you're fired. Are we being shrewd enough? Am I being shrewd enough? Am I looking towards the future enough? I don't know if we can answer that today. Let this message settle into your soul this week. Reread it a few times, and if something new comes to light, tell somebody. Call me, because some of my generous confusion may be able to go away then. Maybe things will get cleared up. Or perhaps they won't. Maybe we'll just have to continue living in the the mystery of our faith. God knows what he's doing. Thankfully, God is not confused. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray and uh, we'll sing one more song together.